Hi, this is Jack, doing post-production on this episode from a Motel 6 in Savannah, Georgia. This is Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, recorded Friday, February 27th, 2013. This time on UCAP, legendary aircraft company Beechcraft exits bankruptcy. They're building a really big airship in Tustin, wherever that is. We disagree on what the impact to GA will be from the sequester budget cuts, and trying to avoid notice by the feds by changing the tail number on your plane, not a very good idea. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, D-Wiz. So did you know that if you're worried about the FAA uh, kind of coming down on you, you, what you do is you just take some masking tape and you change the number on the side of your, your airplane. Oh, yeah. That's an old trick. I thought everybody knew that. <laughs> Apparently when they that's catch... It, that's you. in what? Far 13 or something. <laughs> yeah, far like, 69. The FAA doesn't think it's a very funny joke, though. Uh, well, they just have no sense of No humor. sense of humor at all. Uh, this is... Uh, who put this on the list? I think David did. Yeah, David. Um, you know what story we're talking about here? We're talking about the helicopter guy who... Uh, uh, yeah, I put that on the list earlier just today. Yeah, but can you... So do you remember the story? Can you tell us the story? What happened with this guy? Only what I know from what I read in that piece. And but, that is... That uh, he was, uh, he knew he was going to be doing something that he didn't want to be identified for, so he tried to manipulate, alter the appearance of his airplane's or of his helicopter's tail number with a creative use of uh, of tape, and uh, got caught anyway. And. I think uh, I think he's looking at a two-year ban on flying, a two-year ban on owning a helicopter. Could have done three years in the slam. And in case anybody asks, there is no parole or probation from federal p- prison. Yeah, and apparently this is a this was a plea bargain. So uh, yeah, he uh, right. This was this was the compromise punishment. Yeah, a Tulsa. So what are we looking at here? We're reading from uh, Oklahoma's own Channel Six News on Six dot com. A Tulsa businessman forfeits helicopter pilot pi, helicopter comma pilot's license in federal plea deal. Uh, a Tulsa businessman has agreed to forfeit his helicopter and not fly or possess any aircraft for two years, according to federal court records. Uh, records show that Bill Stokely will plead guilty to illegally changing his helicopter's FAA registration number uh, in October. Pers- prosecutors will drop count two, which alleged that Stokely flew his uh, Robinson R-44 helicopter without having a valid pilot's license. So this guy was like, you know, he was he was pushing the edge of the envelope all over the place here. He, he may uh, have been flying without a pilot's license, and he changed the number. But it doesn't say here what it was he was doing, or does it? Does it say what he was doing well, that he was trying to hide? I read, no, it doesn't. I read another article that said the guy had stashed uh, a bunch of... Uh, um, uh, fuel cans, uh, like jerry cans or just five-gallon uh, 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 plastic cans of, of fuel, in various places um, uh, along routes where he would fly his helicopter. Uh, and local constabularies kind of, why? what is, is apparently noticed this somehow, uh, made note of it, and kind of followed him around a little bit to try to figure out what was going on here. Um, and uh, finally keyed on to the fact that 
Uh, there's this little bit of tape on the in number that turns the the Quebec to a zero because uh, you can't have an in number ending in Oscar. And um, that kind of went downhill from there for him. Um, we don't need no stinking regulations. Yeah, I guess not, huh? So, but in the way you describe that, it sort of you know hints at a much bigger crime going on well, here. Well, it, it could. It doesn't have to be a crime. It could be you know he didn't want his wife tracking him somewhere. Oh, okay. Could could be you know um, could be anything. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he didn't want to go into this airport or that airport to get fuel while he was flying from A to B. Uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. So it's against the FARs to cha- to not have a proper number on your aircraft. Oh, well, yeah. it's falsifying registration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How does it work with things like like warbirds and stuff that have all sorts of confusing markings on them? How so? Well, I mean, they look well, like you're military. You're talking about ones that might have old military, like invasion marks or oh, oh. original military serial number. Yeah, exactly, yes. If you look at those, Jack, you'll generally see that tucked away in there somewhere is a smaller than standard, uh, allowed under antique rules, among others, uh, right. small N number that takes care of the legalities. And the rest of that stuff is for historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. It's so a shame. They, they, get a, they get a buy on that. It's a shame. Uh, what are you looking up, Jeb? Jeb's looking something up. Well, Jeb's looking something up. Here's my question. So, so the helicopter guy in Tulsa, he could have, like, you know, cha- you know, he he kind of he reworked his his N number, the big one. All right, but just claim that that's in fact just decorative, you know, kind of the paint job, and that it's no. the, the actual N number is much smaller down there. See it right down there. By you see, the he's he's bound by size regulations for something as new as a Robinson R forty four. Ah, okay, okay, uh, you can't. That's a special situation, but the smaller than standard is allowed you know for antiques and vintage and war certain warbirds flying under certain type of certificates i see uh, no that it, makes sense jeb yeah, what are you looking it, up and looking on top up. of that here what the guy's doing is uh, 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 making a change in an attempt to avoid identification all right. Now, if there's not a signal, and you just don't do that in the 21st century America, well, you just don't do that if you're not trying to hide something. Particularly, you know what? I don't know, but he, like Jeb said, he he might have been just not want to uh, uh, visit certain airports. He might not want his wife tracking. Uh, I think that at the bottom line, he knew that dropping in and using these staged fuel dumps uh, depots was not legal. Mm-hmm. Jeb, what did you find? Well, FAR 45, uh, typically, um, which uh, is uh, the title of which is um, Identification and Registration Marking. And subpart C thereof discusses registration and display of registration marks and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Dave is 100% correct. Um, antique, exhibition, and other aircraft, there's a special, special set of rules. Um, you know, if you do it right and talk to the FISDO and tell them why and that, you know, maybe purpose of exhibition or making a motion picture or television program, you don't have to have any in numbers. But you have to, like, tell the agency that this, this is why and, and get their approval. Um, you can have numbers as small as two inches, uh, depending on the type of aircraft. Um, 
I have twelve inch numbers on my airplane in part because it, it, it's 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 uh, age is is eligible for for different uh, size numbers, but um, to penetrate an eight is you have to have twelve inch numbers. Oh, okay. Okay, and you can do that with duct tape. It doesn't have to be painted. Right. Okay. Um, But um, um, there's all kinds of little little things here. Let's see. Uh, There's size of marks. Fixed-wing aircraft must be at least 12 inches high, except that an aircraft displaying marks at least 2 inches high before November 1, 1981, and an aircraft manufactured after November 2, 1981, but before January 1, 1983. (sighs) <sighs> may display those marks until the aircraft is repainted or the marks are repainted, restored, or changed. Um, there's all kinds of little little things that go into this. That thing where it says 12 inches high, does it, does it also, it must spell out how heavy the letters, how, how wide, how thick the letters have to be. There, there is a, a rule about spacing. The space between each character may not be less than one-fourth of the character width. Well, there what is, I was getting at is if I make my end number numbers no, that's, that's 12 inches saying. high but right. do it with a sharpie pen that's you know i'm saying that, well, yeah that's what so, I okay so, well size of marks there's a there's a subsection here 45.29 okay uh except as provided in paragraph f yada 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 um height um fixed wing aircraft must i just read all that um let's see um and no you can't use wing dings no, you can't use wingding characters. No, <laughs> see that's um, uniformity. Marks required before this part must have the same height, width, thickness, and spacing on both sides of the aircraft. Um, after March 7, 1988, each operator of an aircraft penetrating an ADIS or D or DWIS distant early warning identification zone, I presume, must display on that aircraft temporary or permanent nationality and registration marks at least 12 inches high. Um, da, 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 da. You know, there's, there's all kinds of little things. Now, I, I don't find it here. Uh, maybe it's in an AC somewhere that talks about, um, or maybe it's just a, uh, an order or something like that adopted by the, regist- the registry that talks about um, um, which numbers can be used in which sequence. As I mentioned earlier, you, you can't use zero at the end of the uh, uh, at the end of the end number, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. because that can get confused with Oscar, the, the letter O versus the number zero. Same thing for the letter I and the number one. You can't use those to end the end number. I don't believe. I've always wondered how you get. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to use them even in the number. It's always confusing, no matter where they're placed, right? Well, it could be. I mean, my end number ends. My end number has a one in it, mm-hmm. and a letter ending the the number. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's also with uh, airport identifiers. I've always had a problem with zeros or O's. You know, it's like, is that a zero or an O? I don't know. It's... Well, I think there's a convention there also. I don't know. Um, but that's a whole different subject. We won't get it, into that. No, actually, there. I guess there isn't a, a convention there because. I'm familiar with an airport that that was named Whiskey Zero Zero, and then of course you have airports like. Um, let me think of one real quick. Uh, I think Altoona, uh, Pennsylvania is A zero is A O O, Alpha Oscar Oscar. Let's, why don't we look that up before we go any further? Okay. <laughs> Alpha Alpha Oscar is Jabara. 
Altoona. Yep. Okay. Alpha, Alpha Oscar? Alpha Oscar Oscar. Oh, Alpha Oscar Oscar. Sorry. Right. Now, what about Kalamazoo? Uh, I had a girl in Kalamazoo. <laughs> zoo, 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 zoo. While you're looking these things up, I will say, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm here with my two good friends. Uh, let's see now. Jeb's busy looking things up, so we'll talk to David first. Kazoo or Kazo. Kazo? What's Kazo? Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. Uh, Alpha Zulu Oscar. My two good friends here. That's Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm I'm fine. I'm glad I'm not in Kalamazoo, actually. Yeah. Uh, weather-wise, anyway. But, uh, you know, having a good week, um, uh, getting stuff done, uh, kicking butt, taking names. Yeah, yeah. You got to ride your motorcycle this afternoon. Yeah? I did. I did, yes. I had to go to Ooh, which one did you take? CBR. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he was looking refreshed when I saw him come back up the uh, in the front yard there. So, uh yeah. And uh, that other voice is Dave Higdon, uh, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? You rode a motorcycle today. Not exactly the CBR, though. No, not exactly. It's uh, new for us, uh, Aprilia Scarabio 200, uh, an Italian motor scooter that we just picked up from my bride. Uh-huh. And uh, it just made a uh, arduous trip on the back of a truck from Portland, Oregon, and is sitting out on the patio where I can see it. On a rare, open, snowless piece of pavement. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, you, you weren't necessarily planning on riding it today, I understand, right? Because it's not really bike riding season. Or well, is it? I, was, I was expecting the truck to actually come here and drop it at my doorstep. But that proved to be not uh, happening. So I uh, had to run over about a mile and a half from here and meet the truck and we unloaded it and checked it out and started it and rode it around the block and gave the guys check and rode it home. Cool. So Cool. Yeah. Now, how'd you get home? I rode the scooter. No, no, no. How'd you? Okay. Annie, Annie took you to the, to the shop? Uh, yeah, she dropped me, oh, and then okay. she headed over to another motorcycle shop to get a cover for her new bike. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Okay. And before I forget, I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, I am also talking to you from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. This is my last evening, actually. This is kind of bittersweet. This is uh, yeah. my last evening down here in Florida for the oh. uh, for this particular visit. And uh, um, I head back, uh, hit the road tomorrow morning sometime, and uh, going to spend a couple days driving north and uh, arrive back up in uh, at Lookout Point uh, over the weekend, uh, uh, at which point I have been assured that uh, winter will be over. So I just want everybody to... Who, who assured you of that? I, you know, the locals are telling me, don't worry about it, Jack, come on home. It's fine here, you know, so I don't know what I think about that, but... Uh, it'll, uh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be just like it is here, right? I just, I can just put on my shorts tomorrow morning and not have to worry about it, right? Exactly. Yeah, Because right. you're not going to get there tomorrow anyway. Yeah. So anyways, uh, what else is going on here? I, uh... Let's see now. Ooh, there's a list here someplace. Where'd it go? Here it oh, is. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Under, it's under far 45. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so did we finish the thought on that other one here? Did we get everything out that we wanted to talk about? I'm not about sure there? what the thought was. Well, you were looking something up. You found what you, you told us what you were looking up, right? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Regist- registration. Yeah. All right. Well, changing the subject then. Um, so 
what was it? Did we just have an anniversary or something for for GARA for the uh, the uh, General Aviation Revitalization Act? Was it like twenty years or something like that? Or no, because it was in the news recently. Or is it just because well, Mother Jones? Um, it, it, well, there's just two or three things going on. One, this this guy did a study, uh, analyzed. I don't know, did a paper. I guess it's called, and there's a link to it here. Um, uh, if you dive down a little bit. Um, the uh, Journal of, uh, I'm sorry, the Journal of Law and Economics, mm, okay. uh, the August uh, edition apparently, uh, has a paper in here um, talking about uh, the uh, success of the General Aviation Revitalization Act of 1994. Mm-hmm. Now, before and, we go on, can you give us kind of a real, the short version of what the General Aviation Revitalization Act was or is? Uh, GARA, as it's, it's called, uh, General Aviation Revitalization Act of, of 1994, um, its primary feature was to um, Im- create, I should say, a uh, statute of repose uh, associated with um, the liability of a manufacturer for a general aviation aircraft or component. Uh, statute of repose basically ends uh, the manufacturer's liability after X, X number of years or X period of time. In this case, it was 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, an air, in other words, an aircraft uh, purchased new today uh, the manufacturer of that aircraft is liable uh, uh, under product liability law uh, for that aircraft for 18 years, but no longer. Mm-hmm. Prior to, to GARA's enactment, uh, there was no end. Right. So uh, 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 J3 Cub Piper manufactured in 1939, uh, prior to GARA's enactment, it was still liable for that airplane. Mm-hmm. Right. And the upshot was back before GARA came along was that a lot of the GA uh, aircraft manufacturers were not making as many airplanes, not making as many new designs as they might have otherwise because of this unlimited liability. And, and Dave can speak to this better than I can, but Cessna um, flatly stated uh, that if GARA was passed, that it would once again start making airplanes. And, and in fact, and, they did, right, and, David? And in fact, it did. Yeah. <clears throat> it became... Uh, pretty much the only story that I was on assignment to cover for about eight months, nine months. The uh, interviewed Russ Meyer, who was then chairman and CEO of Cessna Aircraft at NBAA in 93. And uh, he told me flat out, he said, I want you to get this right. He said, if Congress and President Clinton agree and give us the General Aviation Revitalization Act, we will resume production of at least three propeller models. Uh, We'll build a new factory. We'll hire new employees. Uh, We'll start working to get this business back on its feet. Uh, And he said, that's no ifs or buts or equivocation. Mm -hmm. Congress passes this law. president signs it. We go back into the piston airplane business. Yeah, and I think I think most of us consider that this 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 uh, uh, act was a success. It accomplished the goal that it was set out to do, which was to re- revitalize the uh, general aviation in some ways. Um, uh, it, it had fairly significant of, of effect, and still does today. Right. 
So now, uh, 19 years later, uh, this gentleman, Alex Tabarrok, has uh, done uh, some research, has done a study uh, on the, the effect, or at least some of the effects, of the uh, GARA, the General Aviation Revitalization, Revitalization Act. And uh, you, you kind of hinted at it, Jeb, but can you tell us a little bit more about what it is he, he concluded? Well, according to the abstract of the article, and, and it's, um, all, that is about all that's available without paying for it, which I'm not going to do, um, <clears throat> the thesis of the, um, of the paper is that product liability law um, uh, reduces the cost of accidents to consumers, thus reducing their incentives to invest in safety. Now, uh, that's perhaps uh, at odds with his conclusion. It says, says um, the results are consistent. So we, we use the exemption uh, at age 18 of the aircraft to estimate the impact on tor- of tort liability on accidents as well as on a wide variety of behaviors and safety investments by pilots and owners. The results are consistent with moral hazard. When an aircraft is exempted from tort liability, the probability that the aircraft will be involved in an accident declines, according to this paper. <laughs> Direct evidence of pilots and owners' behavior is also consistent with moral hazard. Uh, I don't agree. With, and that, that laughter you heard was Higdon, H-I-G-D-O-N. Um, and I don't agree with the premise of the paper. I don't either. In yeah. what way? Well, quote, when an aircraft is exempted from tort liability, the probability that the aircraft will be involved in an accident declines. I simply do not agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. I think what we're looking at is, is uh, uh, the old standard of correlation versus causality. Right. Okay. Um, yes, it is, although you, know, you can crunch the data in a lot of different ways, it is a true statement to say that uh, general aviation accident rates have declined since the mid '90s. Okay, um, I do not believe that GARA has had much impact, on, if any, on that. Uh, for example, I don't fly around wondering if or worried about crashing and thinking. Well, you know, at least if I crash, I can sue. Or, or if I don't, if I crash, I can't sue somebody. Uh, on one hand, the vast majority—I would think—the vast majority of lawsuits are brought by um, um, estates and heirs, not the actual accident victims. Okay. Um, secondly, I don't fly around worried at all about. Um, a uh, uh, an accident or, or who I'm going to sue or anything like that. I fly around worried about getting my little hiney back on the ground uh, in one piece mm-hmm. and, and not getting it in a pinch, uh, so to speak. Um, yes, the, you know, perhaps the article and I, you know, it'd be nice to have a, 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 a copy of the article we're talking about. But uh, <clears throat> based on the two... Uh, um, um, references we've seen to it. One is uh, in this in this journal. Um, well, keyed on uh, from this journal, uh, the, uh, the website uh, Marginal Revolution. Apparently, a, a blog here, and the the author, one of the authors of the study, was blogging about uh, uh, the, st- the paper itself. The other um, article that we're that really kind of keyed us all into this is an article in Mother Jones. Uh, written by Kevin Drum, 
and uh, dated February 19, titled The Odd Case of Liability in Small Airplanes. And uh, Drum, I think, falls prey to this, the, uh, the um, um, correlation versus causality uh, uh, problem here also, in that, um, um, you know, for example, he, he says, this, says, we're supposed to believe that once the ability to sue over an extremely unlikely, unlikely accident was taken away, pilots actively decided to fly less, wear seat belts more, and replace their old equipment. Really? And that's kind of, that's kind of um, um, my, my reaction. I, oh, yeah, I ran out and bought new yeah. seat belts for the Comanche just because I could sue somebody if they broke. Exactly. It, it doesn't I'm sorry, make, but this, this guy's... No, no, it just doesn't make any sense. I think coincidentally, now, let's, let's you know, cause and effect. Um, I think a lot of technologies and a lot of... Um, um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, um, standards, easing of, of uh, some standards perhaps, came into place in the mid-1990s, uh, courtesy of the FAA. For one, we saw GPS uh, come into vogue. We saw increased use of microprocessors in the, in the instrument panels. We saw moving maps. Uh, even even uh, active noise reduction headsets kind of came into being. Uh, um, or in, it became economically feasible for the average pilot uh, during that time frame. Um, at the same time, looking at seatbelts, for example, we saw a, a policy change at the FAA, which basically said, you know, we think that shoulder harnesses and seatbelts um, are such a good safety uh, uh, and injury-reducing step that pilots and aircraft owners can take that we're making it easier for aircraft owners to install seat belts and shoulder harnesses in their aircraft. And they did that uh, through a, a rather lengthy policy statement uh, detailing how uh, and under what circumstances uh, certain paperwork is necessary to install shoulder harnesses. Um, I think also at the same time we saw the General Aviation Revitalization Act we also saw a revitalization of general aviation generally. We saw Cirrus. We saw Diamond. We saw um, the new Cessnas. Um, we saw a lot of different things hit the market. Um, very few, well, I won't say very few. Um, <clears throat> the Cirrus, of course, came with an airframe parachute, uh, a you know, deadlock cinch being a safety item. Um, but we saw so many other little innovations that reduced workload, that um, provided more accurate navigation, um, that um, made it easier to fly. We saw in, in cockpit weather, uh, things like this. All of these things have made aviation safer, okay? Mm -hmm. None of which um, really impact... Um, the let me, let me restate. Let me state this correctly. None of which um, really involved the pilot thinking about whether or not that component he just put on his airplane uh, restarts the Gara 18-year clock. What rings the pilot's chime is yes, safety, but also efficiency. Um, um, increased situational awareness, enhanced situational awareness, 
and the simple fact that it's gotten a little bit easier than it used to be. And I think all these things are, are, are much greater factors in the admittedly slight reduction in, um, in, in the accident rate over the period of time, over this period of time. Yeah. Dave. Okay. David, anything you want to add to that before we move on? Well, the, uh, the, 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 the premise is wrong. The methodology doesn't match up. The conclusion is at odds with reality. Uh, other than that, it's a great study. <laughs> other, other than that, I'm intrigued by the idea. Uh, but since stuff like this takes several years to start to gain traction, uh, you know, looking at it 18 years after on the premise that that's, you know, the, the new stuff that was <clears throat> built that first year is now exempt. There was damn little stuff built that first year. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It took the industry quite a number of years to come back. I mean, exactly right. Jeb's one hundred percent right. This 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 law helped spur the creation and founding of Cirrus and Lancer certificated airplanes, uh, which now owned by Cessna, uh, brought Diamond into the U.S. Helped bring Diamond into the U.S. market at a larger level. Uh, helped Piper launch some new products. Uh, just brought a wave of innovation in that is immediately subject to liability laws and will be for 18 years. And wow, those crazy plane makers and accessory makers, despite, you know, being able to avoid any of this by not making anything new, they jumped in and made new stuff, new technology, new ideas that made us safer. Uh, The airframe parachute, uh, autopilots that can self recover with the push of a button, uh, three dimensional, Synthetic vision, uh, enhanced vision, uh, airbag seat belts for airplanes right, right. that pilots invest in at a fairly significant uh, level. So to think that the pilots are laying back and, 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 and at all using this as an excuse to do less. Well, they did say they were spending more on safety items. I think pilots spend more on safety items when more good ideas come to market. Right. And not right. based on whether a piece of legislation now, made it through the sausage grinder. Yeah, you, you just keyed on something that I think is important and I think we need to highlight, which is uh, <clears throat> if GARA had not been enacted, um, would Cirrus have come out with the airframe parachute or would right. Cirrus have even, have even produced a, a, a certified aircraft to begin with? Um, um, would the airframe parachute have become as popular? Would uh, AmSafe have developed its its uh, uh, airbags for general aviation aircraft? Um, it's you, know, you can get into this a little bit more deeply, and I'm I'm fairly cognizant, fairly certain that the authors of the study didn't really do so. Um, were some of these products that w- came out later after Gara? Uh, would they have come out if GARA had not been enacted, if, if the rest of the playing field was level? Would Garmin have come out with a 430 and 530? Would uh, uh, Lightspeed and other manufacturers have come out with A&R headsets um, if the product liability tail had not been shortened? Well, but now, aren't you now, aren't you now defeating your own argument? Aren't, aren't no. you saying now that GARA made all of these... Um, uh, what, what uh, enhancements study, possible what, and thus improved study, safety? What the study seemed to be saying is that the enactment of GARA 
uh, resulted in pilots flying more safely. Oh, okay, so you, it, uh, that part of you disagree with? Okay, I see what yeah, you're saying. That I, that I dis- disagree okay. with. Okay, all right. Um, Gara's enactment, I think, did in fact see uh, all these other developments uh, and all these other products come out that helped enhance our safety. Uh, but the simple act of ending product liability on the on the uh, the the uh, in use in service fleet, I don't think did a damn thing. Okay. So the upshot here is that we think GARA was definitely a good thing for our industry, uh, but this gentleman's uh, conclusions don't ring true to us. Well, they don't fit with our experiences. Okay. I yeah. think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's, they don't fit with, with our <clears throat> hands-on experiences, both before, during, and after GARA's passage. Got it. Okay. Moving on. So uh, look at this. This uh, here's an airplane that all three of us would fly. Not an airplane, an aircraft. Uh, and uh, but Jeb, you're going to need a bigger hangar. Uh, this yeah. this uh, airship. This is a story from what's it from uh, the L.A. Times uh, website. Uh, Construction is complete on behemoth airship. First flight planned. Uh, let's see now. A massive cargo-carrying airship has taken shape inside one of the 17-story wooden blimp hangars at the former military base in Tustin. And I, I, this is in the U.S., right? Where's Tustin? Tustin is the fact that it's in the L.A. Tustin, Times. I, I don't know. No, I have um, no idea. Uh, according to aircraft maker Worldwide Aeros Corp. Construction is complete on a 36,000-pound blimp-like aircraft designed for the military to carry tons of cargo to remote areas around the world. Uh, there aren't many pictures of it here, but uh, this, this nose-on picture of it is just really, really uh, sharp. Um, it, it looks very—it's uh, it, not a you know kind of not a blimp that has a sort of tube shape. It's much more well, flat. It's not a blimp. It's not a blimp. It's a dirigible. It's, it's a, a dirigible. It's a right. dirigible. It's a, it's a yeah, solid structure inside. Yeah. And, uh, and it's also very mirror like it looks, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very UFO ish. If you ask me, I, I, you know, at least this one picture we're seeing of it here Let's see if there's any other pictures. I don't think there are. Um, but uh, I think they borrowed a prop from Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, I know, huh? It I looks. Think, I think if you uh, go to a website called Arrow's Craft, www.aeroscraft.com, click on Media and click on Image Gallery. Oh, here we go. All right, all right, all right. Yes, here it comes. Here it comes. You will find some additional images of this craft. Media image gallery. Ooh, yeah. And I like the oval shape. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's got some very impressive, you know, tail fins on the back here. It's uh Well, you need a lot of surface area when you're trying to maneuver with a lot of airflow. Mm-hmm. Without a lot of airflow. You know what it makes me think of, though? It looks like, I just realized what it looks like. It looks like the uh, the lead balloon that the Mythbusters guys made. Remember the episode where the Mythbusters yeah. made, yeah. made a lead balloon? It looks uh, like a whale shark to me. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. it's kind of it's got that big, yeah, yeah, well, I, yeah, you're right. That's right, I see what you're saying, uh, Jeb. So uh, this is a cool, uh, a cool aircraft. Let's see if there's more information about it here in the... Uh, uh, on their particular website here. Uh, Eros Airship Division is focused on the design, manufacture, and delivery and support of some of the most advanced airships in the world. Uh, so, uh, cool stuff. I guess they make other airships, too, I guess. So, yeah, yeah. 
their their products tab here <clears throat> lists arrows arrows air what does it say arrows craft mm-hmm. airship aerostat and tower what's tower is it like literally towers it's uh, oh it's it's radio towers allow your 1700 foot friend down the road here um, yeah this is the current 260 foot long vehicle is a demonstrator for the upcoming ml 866 arrows craft model which will be 500 feet long and have a 66 ton cargo capacity yeah What's the name? Dragon Dream? Is that what they call it? Is that, that's, that's painted on the side of the picture yeah, I'm looking at yeah, right now. Dragon yeah. Dream. Mm-hmm. Dragon Dream. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cruise speed of approximately 120, uh, 100 to 120 knots. Uh, operational altitude, 12,000 feet. Um, can go to 18,000 feet or over with without uh, reduction of payload. I don't understand that. Um, maximum flight range of 3,800 nautical miles, um, 5,100 nautical miles for the, uh, uh, for later, uh, models. Um, da, 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 da. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool stuff. Hopefully it can, it can make it go. I think the airships are cool and I would love to see airships come back. It would be awesome to see them flying around the airspace. Um, Well, there's two, two unrealized, uh, dream ambitions dreams and schemes of flying machines as they go one of them is big cargo carrying dirigibles for zeppelin big airships uh because of the volumes the other is huge cargo or passenger delta wings Mm -hmm. because they also have this huge volume advantage in a swept tailless no fuselage machine uh, which is one of the things that makes the B-2 bomber so efficient. They've got such a great capacity to carry so much stuff. But th- that idea has been batted around back and forth uh, time and again. You could put far more people in a smaller airplane with less power and lower fuel and go faster in a swept, tailless wing design. But they never seem to quite get over the novelty factor. Mm-hmm. I think their the, their unusual shape and, and and appearance alone is a handicap they have trouble overcoming. Yeah, cool stuff. Cool yeah. stuff. Can't wait. David, you wrote on the list. You said it's back. What's back? Beechcraft. Yeah. Now, why is this good? What's significant? I mean, Beechcraft's been around, right? Uh, Jeb's got a, got one, and lots of people have them. And uh, tell people, tell us what what happened here. What was the well, about 10 months ago, what was in Hawker Beechcraft uh, Corporation uh, declared bankruptcy, uh, saddled with several billion dollars in debt that they were having difficulty servicing. The market had been down. Their jet sales had been uh, uh, poor. Their performance at developing and delivering jets had been less than stellar, to be kind. And uh, finally, the weight of the finances uh, just got the better of them. They brought in a guy named Steve Miller, who was considered a financial guru to serve as uh, CEO in place of Bill Boyster. And the business world knew Miller as a financial turnaround artist, not a breakup artist who comes in and dis- dismembers a company and sells off pieces and puts people on the streets, but a guy that finds a way to turn around a company and on a financial basis to do so. And over the last 10 months, that's basically what they've been working on. Uh, 
in a strange twist. Their union hourly workers have managed to fight, negotiate, and win the salvation of their pension plans. Hmm. And most of the other hourly workers and a lot of the salaried workers' pension plans, old pension plans, have gone away and are now in the hands of the Pension Guarantee Benefit Corp. That's a federal entity funded by companies that have pensions. Uh, And the new company, uh, Beechcraft Corporation, is strictly a propeller building, a propeller aircraft building entity. They are closing down or have closed down their jet lines. The assets are for sale. Their uh, uh, Hawker and Premier Completion Center uh, equipment, uh, like they had a huge completion center at Little Rock. Uh, that's all on the, on the market. Uh, they managed to, during the bankruptcy process, shed themselves of some warranty responsibility for existing jets and not some others. So that was a mixed bag. But we are now back to essentially what Beach Aircraft Corp. was in 1980 before Raytheon Corporation bought it, a propeller airplane company building small aircraft predominantly for the owner-flown business and individual market. And very heavy in the military stuff. Yeah, I was going to say. And that's good news. That's like 7,000 jobs around the world. Yeah. About 3,600 of them here in town. A lot of suppliers uh, with business that's going to continue through this. And a, lo- and a lot of their employees that will continue their jobs because of that. So mm-hmm. uh, it would have been at least historically tragic had... Beechcraft been one of the marquee names that disappeared from the general aviation landscape. Jeb, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Have uh, have Beech aircraft owners? I mean, what have they thought about this whole adventure? Um, I you know that's a very good question, and I don't have a very good answer for you. Um, Looking back, mainly uh, the main reason I don't have a a very good answer for you is I just haven't been paying that much attention to what some of the uh, the chatter is among uh, Beechcraft owners. Uh, back, I'd say, you know, three, four, five years ago, when uh, um, Beach was, uh, it was widely known that Beach was having some economic issues. Uh, there was definite discussion of, you know, well, what the the most likely thing for Beach or, or I guess, really uh, Hawker Beechcraft, uh, as it was known then. Most likely thing for them to do would be to jettison the piston lines, uh, minimize their their the number of models of King Airs that they make, and put all their focus into the military markets and the high end jets. That was the conventional wisdom as to the directions in which uh, Hawker Beechcraft would go. Uh, the the scenario that Dave outlines. Is, is very refreshing uh, from that standpoint, and it's one with, 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 uh, with which I agree. Ironic, uh, even. Yeah, ironic. Um, I'd, I'm, I welcome this, uh, not just from the standpoint of being a beach owner, but uh, beach is one of the, the, the proudest names in, if not the proudest name, in general aviation manufacturing, and uh, has a, you know, a huge history of innovation, of, of performance, of quality. 
and uh, I want to see them, you know, nurture that, foster that, develop new products that would make mine obsolete. Uh, in fact, and uh, uh, let's 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 pick up our skirts and and uh, let's move on down the road. Mm-hmm. I'd like, it, I'd very much like to see that. I think, I think the vast majority of of uh, uh, people like myself who own what would be considered a legacy beachcraft uh, feel the same way. They, I think, are down to their last chance to make this work. Yeah, yeah. I honestly do. Uh, they've got some assets that will help generate some cash that could help fund the new development that they were talking about at NBAA last year. Uh, for those that don't follow this, like maniacs, like me do, uh, the then Hawker Beechcraft was already pointing toward getting rid of the jets as part of the bankruptcy plan and developing two, maybe three new turboprop airframes and possibly one new piston airframe in the next five years. Uh, definitely looking at two new turboprop airframes, uh, basically singles, mm-hmm. uh, because they have nothing in that market uh, between the Baron and the C90 uh, King Air. And, uh, you know, the singles, uh, a lot of guys poo-pooed that whole idea when it first started to gain a toehold 20 years ago. But if you look at Pilatus, yep. TBM, right? Uh, and Piper and the Meridian. And even Cessna uh, with the Caravan. Cessna with the Caravan. <clears throat> Different class of turboprop, that one, but it still fits generically. Yeah, it, it, it Those absolutely. airplanes have done extremely well. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, the Caravan is, is definitely a different class, uh, different um, uh, design uh, philosophy behind it compared to the TBMs or the uh, uh, the the uh, Meridians or the uh, or the Pilatus PC12. That said, uh, it's it's just as successful as the rest of those. Uh, oh, I even think more, even more so. Uh, yeah. yeah, more so. Um, but um, you know, taking uh, you know, uh, I, I would want to see Beach, you know, go get more heavily into composites. They've got a, a lot of expertise uh, from the. Um, um, Premier development. Um, I'd like to see them develop uh, at least an all-composite fuselage uh, that could be, you know, expanded, contracted, depending on the model that they wanted to build. Um, they could definitely come up, I, I would think, with uh, um, a, a PT6 power single PT6 powered um, aircraft seating, you know, six to eight people. Uh, without a whole lot of fuss, they've got the technology, they've got the expertise. Uh, certification costs, of course, are a whole other issue, but uh, um, uh, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, I, I, I'd like to see them develop an alternative to the Bonanza too. Uh, you know, there is nothing wrong with the Bonanza that a forty percent reduction in parts count. Could exactly fix. right. Exactly right. I mean, that's the biggest downside to a Bonanza. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I, you know, point of disclosure, this is the biggest downside to owning a Comanche. Right. Uh, or building a Comanche. Uh, the era in which they designed, that's how you made things because of limitations on the equipment and the materials and creativity. But you can build that airplane now with a significant smaller parts count and a significant lowered labor 
content. Well, well that's and the key. Probably sell it for thirty percent, thirty-five percent less than a new Bonanza goes for. Mm-hmm. And kitties, a new Bonanza now is not that far away from eight hundred thousand dollars. No, it's not. But only if you get the ultra suede headliner. (laughs) (laughs) I want velour, man. I want velour. (laughs) Moving on here. So uh, I shouldn't have waited this late in the episode to talk about this one because this could take up some time or not. I don't know. Um, So we're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday, February 27th, uh, 2013. Um, In a couple of days. Just two days from the end of the world. Yeah, I know, huh? Um, In a couple more days, if things go the way they seem that they're going to go, these uh, so-called sequestration budget cuts are going to take place here in the United States. And... um, and I've been talking to a bunch of people uh, around the Internet for the last couple of days about this, and, and the answers that I'm getting from people are kind of interesting. Now, let me preface this by saying that I want to kind of walk carefully through these thorny bushes here. I don't, I don't really care to talk about the politics of the whole thing. Um, that, that would be an interesting conversation, but for a different podcast. What I'd like to talk about, if you guys are so inclined, what I'd like to talk about, what I've been trying to get people to talk about with me on the Internet is the effect, if any, of reduced services if these cuts take place um, in aviation. Um, what prompt, what got me starting to think about it is that the uh, federal government, uh, the, the who was it, uh, the administrator, was put on stage a couple days ago and released a list of uh, like 100 airports where they think maybe they're going to have to close the towers. Um, I don't know if it's predominantly GA airports too. I bet they all are. That's what I mentioned to Jeb. I haven't done the research. I'd be willing to bet there isn't a single airline airport on that list, or not well, that many. Bet there's several that get airline service. You think so? Okay. Oh, In sure, any event, they're, sec- they're second and third tier destinations, like you know, uh, Dodge City, Kansas. I don't know if it's on the list. I haven't looked. But Dodge City gets a couple of segments right. a day. Yeah, so but I wouldn't call it an air carrier airport. So, and I confess that this is pretty personal to me because one of the uh, the towers that's on the list is Nashua, New Hampshire, which is my home base, um, and uh, um, Oshkosh is on the list uh, as a potential tower to be closed, um, which would not apply during. Air venture, anyway. Well, that's a whole other question. But let's just kind of talk. Here's what I want to get your your opinion on, your 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 reaction to, and that is, what sorts of reduced services might we see if this happens, and how can we prepare ourselves to stay safe and stay, you know, to continue to get, uh, you know, good use out of our airplanes, if these cuts happen. You know, the towers, some towers may go away. And, and I, you know, I just can't find, I can't, I've been asking people what they think about this. And I can't find anybody who's really worked up about this except me. Um, I, I think there's going to be a whole slew of people. I, you know, I've been watching a, and reading the drumbeat from the alphabet groups, trying to get us excited about this. And I'm sorry, great respect for you guys. And most of you do bang up work. But. I don't see it. Uh, you don't see what, David? Through, I don't see this being uh, a, uh, a critical safety issue at all, first off. Second, in terms of convenience and air traffic efficiency, uh, for GA, here's where I see it being possibly problematic. If you're operating a business jet out of Teterboro, you may have to wait longer on a clearance. You may get handed around a little bit more. 
if you're operating a jet at a Colonel James Jabbar Airport in Wichita, where there is no tower, but you need to leave on a departure on an IFR departure, uh, I doubt seriously there'll be enough changes at Wichita Tower to affect your clearance delivery or your ability to get in in bad weather. So, you know, and if you're an average GA pilot, predominantly flying VFR, zip. Zero nada. Well, see, I'm not sure if I agree with that, all right? I think there's a whole bunch of people who are really, really rusty on non-tower procedures who are suddenly going to be flying out of non-towered airports. And I don't think that's nothing. fly out of non-towered Yeah, but the people who fly out of these these hundred-towered airports are suddenly going to be kind of trying to refresh their memory. Um, I bet a lot of them have very little experience, and certainly with their their own airport. Um, I think that uh, VFR pilots are going to have a harder time getting flight following. I think they're going to be turned down a lot more for flight following. That will affect safety. I, I think that's going to be day-specific and location-specific. But it'll happen. There'll be less. Well, it's already a bitch to get flight following anywhere between Boston and New York City. And it's going to get worse. This is what I, I'm I saying. I don't think it can get worse. I don't think you can get it 90% of the time unless the weather is good and you really don't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, on the other hand, getting flight following going from Tulsa to Oshkosh, uh, I don't, I don't really see that as being that big of a problem. Furloughing, taking a one day of furlough per pay period for the controllers, uh, and making those scheduling decisions that put most of that short staffing between midnight and six a.m. is going to make this close, to, not an absolute nothing burger. But awfully close to it. This is going to be a nothing burger with blue cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be the title right there. Jeb, you're awful quiet. Um, just trying to listen here. And, and uh, um, I, I think, um, first of all, I, I think, uh, although there, it's, it's kind of hard to find a wiser head in Washington these days, I think at some point in the very near future, wiser heads will prevail. Um, and, uh, maybe by this time next week, we will see, um, um, at least <clears throat> some, some realization of the problem and some movement in trying to fix it. Uh, now that having been said, uh, l- looking at the list of, of, uh, control towers, for example, uh, that the FAA published that quote, could be closed, unquote, um, Many of the towers do, in fact, support scheduled service. Uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Florence, South Carolina. I just happen to be in the okay. S's right I'll, I'll stand corrected then. Yeah. Um, um, let's see. What else? Um, I think Sacramento, California is on that list. Sacramento Executive. Um Let's see what else. Bottom line is yes, some of these some of these facilities uh, do in fact. Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, I don't know if Hartford has uh, uh, scheduled service or not. Certainly, uh, um, not. There's two airports in Hartford, and the one that's gonna that there's, that's on that list is just a GA airport. Okay, okay. Um, so you've got that kind of thing going on. Now, I would I would also point out that Lakeland and Oshkosh both are on the on that list, um, and both will get their temporary towers right. for their flyings. Well, right. okay, I'm going to come back to that for sure, Jeb. Yeah, keep going. Another 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 airport I'm familiar with that has scheduled service, Albany, Georgia, is on the list. 
Columbus, Georgia is on the list. Um, Middle Georgia Regional and Macon, Georgia is on the list. Okay, now uh, Hartsfield is not, uh, but um, uh, Cobb County, McCollum Field in Atlanta is. Fulton County, Brownfield in Atlanta also is. Uh, Peachtree DeKalb, interestingly enough, is not on that list. Um, you know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, little nuances going on here. I, you know, personally, I don't think that um, getting a clearance or, or launching or um, um, needing a, a, a missing a tower is that going to is going to be that big a deal. I think some people are going to. You know, oh yeah, I forgot how to do this. Let me let me stop and think about this for a moment. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I just need to call and get my get my clearance before I launch, or uh, I'll just go ahead and launch VFR and get my clearance in route. Um, uh, you know, there'll be a little bit of that going on. the The biggest problem I see um, is going to be um, at the at the support level. Jack and I were were talking earlier about some of this, and uh, if you uh, are going to be renewing a medical anytime soon. Uh, you go through the AME process just fine because that's not covered. You're paying the AME directly, uh, and he or she is is I, I don't know exactly how all that works, but I don't think uh, AMEs or, or for that matter pilot examiners, DPs, designated pilot examiners, are compensated uh, by the FAA. They're compensated by the user directly. Um, so that's not going to be affected. But if that paperwork requires something special, like special issuance medical certificate, to be reviewed by the FAA employees at Oklahoma City, you could well encounter a delay. Okay. Um, same thing is true if you if you need a a three three seven for your airplane uh, through the local FISDO. Um, there are going to be cutbacks in personnel there. And you could experience uh, uh, longer wait times, as, as the phrase goes. So, yeah, there's going to be some impact. Um, <sighs> you know, the, the impact of having 20,000 people take one day off every two weeks is usually less disruptive than the impact of shedding 20,000 people. Yes, I agree. Okay. I agree. And, and I think that that's one of the smart parts of how they've been preparing for this at the federal level, not just at FAA and DOT either, not to, to, to be fair, uh, where they have, and we've seen this in the state of Kansas, uh, where they do these things called rolling furloughs. Mm -hmm. Okay, they need to cut 8% out of the budget. Everybody gets an 8% cut in hours spread out over a year so that you're losing a few hours per pay period rather than taking that many people equivalent out of the payroll altogether, uh, which would be devastating for them and, and harder in, in a lot of ways on the institutions to, to maintain staff work. Uh, and Jeb's right. A lot of this office-level stuff uh, could get more impacted than air traffic, and particularly if this actually lasted for a while. Mm -hmm. right. What I mean by that is none of this stuff is going to start having an impact tomorrow. No. Apparently okay. April 1st is when they think it might really kick in. Well, um, that's when they plan to start implementing. Right. And implementation will roll throughout the fiscal year, which is until September 31. Right. Uh, 
I agree with Jeb. I expect Sanity to briefly visit Beltway. <laughs> you, guys, you guys live wild and crazy lives. Uh, before we move on, let's just do talk about um, one aspect of this that's close to a lot of our hearts, and that is the big air shows. Um, Sun and Fun uh, put out a press release this afternoon uh, where they basically said, uh, well, the headline is the 39th annual Sun and Fun fly-in uh, will not be affected by sequestration. That's the headline in their, their press release. Um, they say that the, uh, the show will go on and uh, uh, all of the, you know, all the exhibitors and sponsors and vendors and everyone will be there. Um, the, to me, the money quote in this is kind of buried down in the fourth graph. It says, if federal funding is restricted or limited for this event, AV enthusiasts who are retired military air traffic controllers weather experts engineers and AP mechanics will offer a number of proficiencies and assume the roles needed to make this event the very smooth and safe operation that it is so uh, um, you know Sun and Fun steps up real quickly here to uh, to say that uh, the show will go on um, have you we heard similar things from uh, from Oshkosh David you seem to think that for sure um, see, for me, it's not the running of the show. It's the it's the operation of the you know it's the notum. It's the operation of the temporary towers or the en- or the enhanced towers rather um, that that seem to me to be at risk. Um, do we have I, reason I to believe that they're going to get that staffing and be able to operate those towers? Yeah, I do because the FAA has control over how it makes these cuts. And and I'll give you an example. Last year, when the FAA was part, was that last year or two years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. Sorry, my mistake. All those years tend to run together. Uh, when the FAA was partly shut down uh, because of congressional inaction uh, on a uh, continuing resolution, the staffing, the FAA tower staffing at Oshkosh was never in question, did not disappear. Right. On the other hand, a lot of FAA staffers who come for work reasons to meet with stakeholders, with users, to participate in events, workshops, forums, safety seminars, etc., that dropped way the hell off. Yeah. So the message, traffic control, safety, that's going to be there. I, I don't, I don't, in my wildest imagination, imagine where to look in and say, oh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we can drop air traffic controllers from Oshkosh. They'll be able to get by. Fine. Uh, the black eye PR-wise would just be, I, I think, un- insurmountable. Yeah. Second, we're already getting word. There's been a lot of questions about military participation in air shows. Uh, well, there's a lot of the big shows uh, that are in question, but... According to my friends at the International Society of Aviation Photographers, it's looking like the Pentagon has already made it clear to sponsors that the big name show team schedules will not be affected. That's the Golden Knights. That's the Blue Angels. That's the Thunderbirds uh, and some of the military orchestras that do special event stuff. Uh, They have control over a lot of their budget-cutting decisions, they're going to keep a lot of the high-profile stuff because they're going to want the public on their side. Yeah. Jeb, what, any, any thought, anything to add to this? Um, not really. I, I wonder, um, I, I think Dave's absolutely right. I mean, for example, Oshkosh, uh, you'll see a bunch of pink shirts. 
you may not see the administrator if this thing continues that long. Uh, it's, it's sounded fun. I, you know, someone's gonna 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 gig me for this, but maybe not having the tower at Sun and Fun might be a good thing. <laughs> uh, maybe not having the, the Notum in effect at Sun and Fun might be a good thing. I don't know. Now I, I'm just being facetious. Um, the uh, some of the uh, the larger military shows uh, uh, have already been canceled. I think, in fact. Uh, uh, there's a show that was scheduled for the Norfolk area. I think that has been canceled already. Um, there's always the uh, <clears throat> the uh, one, one that rings true to me is the Andrews Air Force Base open house and in air show that that uh, uh, is um, I believe in um, uh, mid May something like that. I don't know its status yet. Um, yeah, there is leeway on the part of of uh, the various operating authorities, uh, operating executives, etc. Um, I, I don't know on which side I would want to err if, if I were going to be making one of these, one of these tough calls, would I want to, um, um, for, you know, the blue angels, for example, or the Thunderbirds, would I want to go ahead and, uh, um, ensure that they continue to, 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 uh, um, um, conduct their shows to do their programs, um, as a, um, uh, um, you know, as a as, as an inducement for people to uh, think favorably about the military and perhaps join the military, or would I want to maybe ground them to make a point uh, and and avoid um, uh, perception of uh, well, we've got money for for the Blue Angels, but we don't have money for air traffic controllers. I know we're talking two different agencies, but. Uh, in, 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 in the eyes of the average uh, member of the general public, is all the federal government. Uh, I'm not sure how that's all going to fall out, is the punchline. And the bottom line is that this isn't, you know, this isn't a guillotine kind of thing. When the axe drops on Friday morning and Congress hasn't reached a deal, uh, the world doesn't come to an end. Sorry. Everything keeps steaming along. Yeah. And then okay. we will start to gradually see some things kick in over this. And anybody that tells you, oh, 500,000 people are going to lose their jobs tomorrow All is, right. is, is drinking the wrong flavor Kool-Aid. Well, we'll re- re- revisit this in an episode or two and see yeah, what, what actually talk happens. In, talk to me in four weeks, and, yeah. and we might have a completely different okay. tune. All right. Shout-outs. So what do we got here? Uh, we're reaching, definitely reaching the end of our allotted time here. I'm going to go first because I want to do one that's kind of close to my heart, uh, and that is to uh, to uh, send out some congratulations and a big shout-out to our friends at the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Uh, one Always been one of my favorites of the uh, aviation podcasts who have just re- uh, released uh, their 100th episode. And uh, I know from experience that that's a big milestone, and uh, they deserve a lot of congratulations uh, for sticking with it and for doing such a great job over the years. So, uh, so congratulations to uh, to uh, Grant and Steve and that entire gang uh, for all their good work. And uh, and and I'm going to wish you the same thing people wished on us, which is okay. Now let's get started with the second hundred. The go go go. <laughs> yes. So uh, no no, it's just you know it's like you know, wait a minute, we just did a hundred. We got to do another. 100? I don't know if we got another 100 in us. Uh, you probably do, guys. Keep it up. Go for it. Congratulations. What else? Yeah, well, I didn't put this on the list, and if I'm stealing it from somebody, please chime in. Um, but um, the, uh, the Gimli Glider 
just a shout out to the airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gimli Glider is a, an Air Canada um, 767, Boeing 767, which um, due to a fuel conversion error um, back in 1983, ran out of fuel. Mm-hmm. While airborne, and its crew successfully put it onto an abandoned airstrip, uh, air, airstrip in Gimli, Manitoba. Um, everybody walked away. The, the nose gear, I think, uh, uh, broke off during the landing, but everybody got out, walked away. Um, fairly famous airplane. It is up for auction. Uh, the, the reason it's on the uh, the list here, but uh, just a shout out to to that old seven six. It keeps on going, takes yeah. a licking, and keeps on ticking, <laughs> or something, right? something yeah. like that. Yeah, no, it's great stuff. It's yeah. great stuff. Yeah, yeah I agree. I yeah, agree. I, 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 that and the landing in the Canary Islands. Yeah, uh, two of the most remarkable dead stick tales ever. And the thing about the Gimli Glider that always tickled me is that there was a a, a little club having open-wheel car races there. Mm-hmm. And it was used periodically for sailplanes. But mostly it was being used for car races. It had been an old emergency RCAF or an old RCAF base for uh, training purposes. Yeah. And uh, it's still sitting out there. It was getting used as, a race tr- as part of a race course. And matter of fact, I think there was races being run... A race being run yeah. when the glider, yeah. I'm sorry, when the 6-7 touched down. Yeah, that must have been a sight. That must have been a moment, huh? But, uh, yeah. Well, and, and think about this. This puppy shows up in the airspace, and it's not making any noise. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was probably making a pretty good whoosh. But, yeah, it wasn't making the kind of noise you would expect. So, uh, 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 so it's for sale. You could buy it, right? Yeah. I've always wanted to buy the pilot a drink. Is it like on eBay or Craigslist or what? What's the deal? Is it? I've already closed that link. Let's. It's up for auction. Collector Car Productions, Blenheim, Ontario, is holding the auction. Ah, okay. It won't be going on the block until April. Well, this time then. Okay, good. We'll yeah, we can we can do a, we, can, we can pass the hat. Yeah, we'll just Light yeah. Three nine zero for sixty miles. He was the biggest freaking sailplane in the world. There you go. There you go. Other shout-outs? David? Uh, just a quick one to uh, all of our friends uh, at the Helicopter Association International. Uh, by the time we come back and uh, pick this little business of ours up again, uh, HAI will have finished its Heli Expo, which starts uh, next week on March 4th uh, in Las Vegas. Seems there's a lot of shows in Las Vegas this year. Yeah. Uh, AEA, HAI, NBAA. Uh, Funny how that works. Well, I've already started saving my blackjack money. So, anyway, uh, this is a, a, another biggie in the uh, in the can for HAI, and we just hope that it's a kick-ass, take-name show for them. Uh, I'm already starting to get pretty heavy press release traffic on it, which uh, tells me that there's a lot of business waiting to be done there. Uh, my old friend Brian Foley, who does an- analytical work in business aviation, recently released a report noting that the value of the helicopter market in all of its diversity is about the same value as the business jet market yeah. in its lack of diversity. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Mm. So, 
Yeah. We, we wish we wish you all, Matt Sicaro and all my old friends, uh, Chris Dancy, uh, formerly of another association. Uh, we hope it's a great show for you. Sorry we can't be there. Cool. Anything else? Is that it? We done? I just got stuck by a fork. <laughs> That's uh, Jeb Burnside out there. Jeb is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, Jeb, what have you been working on? Anything fun? Not a thing. Uh, doing personal <laughs> stuff. Uh, so where can uh, people find you on the internet? Uh, JEBurnside.com, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, AEA.net, and occasionally I might pop up on uh, AvWeb.com. But I'm gearing up for the uh, the April issue of uh, Aviation Safety, and uh, it'll be on the streets in about four weeks, and uh, about two weeks from now I'll be done with it. So uh, uh, watch this space. Yeah. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. What you been working on, David? Anything fun? Well, I got a piece coming out in the uh, uh, March Avionics News uh, about portable powerhouses, powerhouses that you can use in the cockpit, uh, focusing on different hardware and software that you can use with tablet computers, smartphones, etc. And a piece coming out in World Aircraft Sales uh, that looks at the various options for re-engineering your business jet to make it cheaper to fly. So, And where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, aea.net, uh, avbuyer.com, uh, and a couple of that I'm working on the new websites for as I speak and hope to have up before Sun and Fun. So we'll talk about those when they're done. Cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, please check out my latest Kindle ebook, Around the Field, Volume 2 Stories about the people, places, and planes of the Oshkosh Fly In. Uh, you can uh, read this ebook on your Kindle device or with the Kindle Reader software on your iPad or your Android device or your laptop or desktop computer. You can learn more about uh, this particular Volume 2 and my other ebooks at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. And in general, learn more. More about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks, as usual, to Jeff Ward for his help with our show notes and in the forums. Uh, please take a few minutes to check out Echo, the general aviation online media channel, at uncontrolledairspace.com/echo. And don't forget to check out with the check. And don't for, it says here on the script. Don't forget to check out the rest. Oh, there we go. Okay. And don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Live long, get old, have a ball, and remember that to get old, go fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. You mean to tell me we actually have a script for some of this? First first I've heard of it. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. AMF. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.